Well, I was thinking before I go back to the ex- exposition of Luke, which we were going through consecutively through Luke, I wanted just to, to focus in just this one week on this passage, this, this really uh, passage that's always fascinated me. I think it's, it's a really uh, beautiful passage because it's a very succinct statement on the atonement of Christ. And when I talk about the atonement of Christ, that's sort of a big theological word, but sometimes you hear about these words, atonement. You, hear, you might hear the, the expression, the work of Christ. So what am I talking about when I talk about the work of Christ or the atonement of Christ? Well, what we're speaking of is what Jesus Christ accomplished at Calvary's cross. You know, we, we talk so much about the cross. We might sing about the cross. We hear sermons about the cross. We, we, we talk about Calvary's cross. And the cross is really the very crux of Christianity. That's the, it was there at that cross that Jesus Christ gave a sacrifice. And it was that sacrifice that, that really, how do we want to say this, that enables God to forgive us of all of our sins. But Jesus Christ accomplished that. It was something that we could not accomplish. It was only something that Jesus Christ accomplished for us. So I want to talk about these things that have to do with Christ's atonement, his physical death on that cross, and what it accomplished, and for whom did he accomplish it? One commentator said of this passage, he says, The clause, one died for all, which eloquently expresses Christ's love, is the gospel in summary. Perhaps a creedal statement of the early church. We acclaim the truth of this statement. Because all Scripture testifies to it. It is by reading God's Word that we come to this conclusion. And the whole text of Scripture is speaking about, it leads up to Christ and what Christ would accomplish on Calvary's cross. That's how we can have peace with God. Paul the Apostle puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 15.3. He says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture. So there we get the fact that Christ died for our sins. For our sins. And we're going to talk more about what does that mean that He died for our sins? How did He die for our sins? And it was something that was prophesied in the Scriptures. So today we're going to talk about what we talk about is called the atonement. And I'm going to give you several characteristics, several aspects of the work of Christ or the atonement, the death of Christ. The first thing we're going to talk about is the atonement of Christ is the supreme manifestation of the love of God. If you ever wondered if God loved you, just look at Christ's work on the cross, Jesus' death on the cross. It is the supreme manifestation of the love of God and the love of Christ. Secondly, we're going to see that God's love as displayed in the atonement is a very compelling motivator in our Christian lives. It should compel us to serve him. In this case, it compelled Paul to serve in his ministry. It was the love of Christ that drove him to do what he did. It was the love of Christ that that made him willing to put his life on the line. And we're going to look at that a little bit more. Thirdly, I want to look at the nature of the atonement. What is it? How does Christ... How does God forgive us of our sins through Christ's death? I mean, how does that work out? 
And again, we're not going to be able to get in tremendous depth, but we will see what Christ accomplished by dying on the cross for us. Fourthly, I also want to look at what some people call the extent of the atonement, the design of the atonement. Or maybe the question would be better, more clearly illustrated, if we said, for whom did Christ die? For whom did he die? Right? If this is what he accomplished, then who did he accomplish it for? That's a very important question. And lastly, I want to show us that the atonement does not just provide us with our forgiveness of our sins or for our justification, but it also provides us with sanctification. It also sets us free from living a life of, in bondage to sin to a life of liberty to serve God. At least it should. So let's look at this. Let me read the text one more time. For the love of Christ controls us, have concluded thus. If one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but the one who died and rose again on their behalf. Now let me very quickly, since we just kind of dove right in the middle of 2 Corinthians, let me just give you briefly the context. Basically, Paul has been defending his ministry from the naysayers. Some in the Corinthian church were intruders, and they would not accept Paul and his message and his ministry. And they thought that he was duplicitous. Maybe they thought that he had false motives for the ministry. And they were trying to dissuade the Corinthian church against Paul. Well, Paul would write this letter. He would also pray, pay the Corinthians several visits trying to defend his ministry. This letter of the Second Corinthians is really, in large part, a defense of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. It really gets into the heart of the Apostle. And one way he defends his ministry here is he explains to them that he merely preaches the gospel. Paul was not about himself. He wasn't about some inner knowledge, like we learned in Sunday school, some Gnostic knowledge that he had to gain. He was a preacher and a proclaimer of the gospel. Um, Again, I want to quote uh, Simon Kistemacher. Here's what he says. Paul opposes these intruders and reminds the members of the Corinthian church of his faithfulness towards them as a minister of the gospel. Fully aware of the discord the intruders cause, he seeks to remove the, conf- uh, the conflict by reminding his readers of the gospel of Christ. So this, therefore, becomes a succinct statement on the gospel and on the death of Jesus Christ. So let's look first at the first point that I had said, and that is that the atonement of Christ, this work of Christ, Christ dying on the cross for sinners, is really the supreme demonstration of the love of God for, for you, for me. Christ dying on the cross is the ultimate demonstration of His love for us, and of God's love the Father, and sending His Son. Romans 5, 6, and 8 states this. I'll just read you verse 8, because that's where you really get down to the crux. It says, God shows His love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that shows you God's love. He didn't save you. He didn't love you. He didn't put His love upon you because you were lovable. He didn't put his love upon you because he needed you. God needs nobody. God decided in really his sovereign plan of redemption to include you in it. 
And that was a demo. And then he sends his son to enact it. And that's a great demonstration of the love of God. So let me just, let me just explain a, some, a little bit more about the characteristics of this love that God has for his people. And that this is supremely demonstrated in sending his son. Let me state a couple things about this love. First of all, this is the love that sent Jesus to the cross. This love is the cause or the source of the atonement. See, some people, I think, erroneously think that, oh, Christ died for me, so now God can love me. Because he died for me, he loves me. No, 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 no. The love of God, the love of Christ was antecedent. And it was that love that caused the Father to send his Son to die on the cross for our sins. It was that God had set his love upon you in eternity. He chose you. He selected you. And then he wants to redeem you, so he sends Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. So the love then is the source of the atonement. God doesn't love us because Jesus died for us, so now he's able to love us. No, the love is what sent Jesus Christ. God loved the world, it says that he sent his son. The love of God is the reason God sent his son to die on the cross. Now, that's true. Now, secondly, I also want to Emphasize, and I think I sort of already did, that this love of God in him sending his son to redeem his people is a distinguishing love. It's a, it's a sovereign love. It's an electing love. It's a predestining love. This means God has loved you in eternity. And he set his love upon you, and he sends Jesus Christ to enact his plan to save you from your sins. God didn't just flippantly one day say, oh, I'm going to decide to love him, save. No, he's loved you from the foundation of the world, from before the foundation of the world. God is love. And his love was displayed upon you, his chosen vessel. For example, the Bible says, for whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He foreknew you in a loving relationship with you, even before you existed. It kind of boggles the mind when you start thinking about God and time and all of these things. But he foreknew you in his plan, and he foreloved you. It doesn't just mean he knew some facts about you. He loved you. He sends Jesus Christ to die for you. Ephesians 1.5 says, In love... He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. So you weren't just an afterthought, so to speak, in God's plan. God had a plan for you that stemmed in his very love for you. You're not an afterthought. You didn't get saved by happenstance. You didn't get saved You know, on accident, you weren't just lucky. God had a plan, and he loved you. And you might ask, why did he love you? He chose to love you. There's really no reason to know. He chose to set his love upon you. John Murray says, the love of God, which which from which the atonement springs, is not a distinction, is not a 
distinctiveness love. It is a love that elects and predestinates. God was pleased to set his invincible and everlasting love upon a countless multitude, and it is the determinate purpose of this love that the atonement secures. So God has foreloved you, and then he sends his son to secure your adoption, your salvation. Stems all from that love. Thirdly, this love is not conditioned on our performance. It's entirely dependent on the sovereign will and decision of God. Sometimes we have earthly fathers, right? And it seems like they love us when we do good, and they maybe don't love us when we don't perform the way they wanted us to. But God's love is not like that. God's love is immutable. God's love cannot change. His love towards you is the same on your good days and your bad days. That doesn't mean that God is pleased if you sin and he has ways to correct you, but his love for you doesn't wax and wane like, like maybe even your own family's love, maybe your friend's love. Maybe you've had people love you one day, the next day they don't seem to love you too much. God's love is not like that. God's love will never change because God doesn't change, and God is love. So it's pretty amazing. So that's the first characteristic of this love, is that the love is a supreme demonstration. I mean, this atoning work of Christ is a supreme demonstration of God's love. Secondly, secondly this, this love that's displayed in the atonement motivates the Christian to service. See, it's when you comprehend the enormity of this love that that will impel us to serve Christ the way we ought to serve him. For example, or, um, notice the text. Go back to the text. Uh, 5.14. For the love of Christ, what does Paul say? Controls us. Paul knew this love, and he says, this love is what controls me. This love is what impels me. This love is what urges me on to be obedient and to serve Christ and to serve the gospel, and to serve God. Let me just give you what some of the translations say of this verse. The NAB says, the love of Christ impels us. The NIV says, for, the Christ, for Christ's love compels us. Um, the NRSV says, the love of Christ urges us on. And the New Jerusalem Bible says, for the love of Christ overwhelms us. And then the MLB, I don't know what that one stands for, but that one says, for the love of Christ lays hold of us. So this word, compels, is this Greek word, echo, and what it means is to hold within bounds so as to manage or guide, direct, or control. So what he's saying is this love of Christ holds us within bounds. This love of Christ confines us. You see, because you realize how much Christ has loved you and he demonstrated by, by dying on the cross for you, therefore, that just really impels you to, to live a life that's worthy of him. You know, you, you, you don't want to go against God. You don't want to go against his law because you know what he's done for you. He's loved you and because he loved you first, you love him the more you realize Christ's love for you, the more you actually love him, and you don't want to disappoint him. The more we comprehend Christ's infinite and eternal love for us, the more we love him, and the more we love him, the more we will be compelled to do his will. 
So I was trying to think of a, an illustration to maybe illustrate this. You know, I was thinking maybe if you had a father or a mother that you really respected. You had a father or mother that, that you really loved and you knew they really loved you. And you knew their commitment that they had toward you and you really respected them. You would not want to go out and do wrong and disappoint those whom you love and respected, right? You wouldn't want to disappoint them because you know how much they really have loved you, what they've done for you. So you've really wanted to try to honor them. Well, I think the same is true for God. The more we know Christ's love by what he did in dying for us, not again, not again, not just to make you lovable, but when you were a sinner, you, there's no reason for him to love you, but yet he chose you in eternity past with this sovereign, unconditional love. He sends his son to die on the cross for you, and he saves you, and he causes you who once hated him to love him. That really makes you want to live for him, and it makes it a little bit more difficult to go out there and sin against him. Because you know how good he has been to you. I'm not saying you don't get tempted. I'm not saying you're not tried. But yet, you know what Christ has done for you, and you want to be obedient. It reminds me of uh, something that we heard in Sunday school. I think it was last week when Polycarp was being threatened to be burned at the stake. This father Polycarp. And the proconsul urged Polycarp to reproach Christ, and they wouldn't kill him. They would let him go. And here's what Polycarp said. He said, 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? So you see, it's, he knew this love of Christ, and he loved Christ. If we want to think about it, our love is reciprocal because God first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. You didn't love God. God loved you. He saved you. He actually caused you to love him. And he's done all of these things. And how can we blaspheme our king and our savior the next time we go out and sin? Well, that's so much for for that point. We've seen then that The atonement is the supreme demonstration of God's love. We also saw that the love displayed in the atonement motivates the Christian for holiness, godly living, and service. But thirdly, let's look at the nature of the atonement. What is it when we talk about Christ's physical death? How does Christ physically dying on the cross, how does that save us? How does God forgive us in virtue of the fact that Christ died on a cross? How does that work out? Well, let's look at the nature of this love, the nature of the atonement. Notice it says, if one died for all, he died for all. So here we have a text that is speaking of the physical death of Christ on the cross, and it says he died for all. Why did he die? What did it accomplish? Well, let's look at the first, this word for Christ's death, first of all, was substitutionary. He was our substitute. Notice Jesus Christ didn't die for himself. He died for others. 
He was not for himself. He, Jesus had never sinned, but he died for our sins. He died for others' sins. Basically, Christ died instead of us. He died in our place. He was our substitute. Let me read you some scriptures. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Maybe you're familiar with this verse. But it says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. What's the curse of the law? Redeeming means he set us free by his payment. He set us free from this curse of the law. What is the curse of the law? Well, the curse of the law is upon everyone, it says, that doesn't continue in all things written in the book of the law. So if you've broken God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, you are under a curse. What curse is that? Well, the curse is eternal damnation in hell. It's hell fire. It's, it's the judgment of God. You see, God is absolutely holy, perfect. He's pure in every way that he can't even look upon sin. And we've all sinned. We've all under this curse. We fall under the curse. And the curse is going to fall on us because we've sinned and transgressed this holy, righteous God. And he has to judge us if he's going to be holy and righteous. So what does he do? Well, he sends Jesus Christ to take our place. He bore the curse of the law for us that we don't have to bear the curse of the law. And what did I say? The curse of the law is. The curse of the law is eternal torment, eternal judgment, eternal conscious torment in hell. And you say, well, Jesus Christ didn't go to hell, did he? No, he didn't go to hell. He didn't have to go to hell because he bore the whole entire wrath of God on the tree, on the cross. He satisfies and pays the penalty. He paid our sin debt. We might say he not only bore our sins, he bore the pains of eternal wrath. So now God can be absolutely holy and just, and he can also be merciful and forgive sinners such as ourselves. Christ paid the curse for us. And the only only person that could do it was Christ. Because remember Christ. Christ is fully God, fully man. Only someone who is fully God can sustain the eternal wrath of God in his being. And satisfy it. Only God can do that. Only Jesus Christ, who has infinite righteousness, infinite holiness, can satisfy an infinitely holy God. But he also has to be not only fully God, he's got to also be fully man. Why? Because if he's going to be our substitute, he has to be a man. That's why the incarnation is absolutely necessary for God to forgive us of our sins. That's why he sent Jesus. He didn't just send Jesus to be born in a manger that we celebrate on Christmas. He did send him, he did come through the Virgin Mary, but he sent Jesus to die so we could have forgiveness of sins. So you see, we should have suffered eternal conscious torment. We are the ones who should suffer, but Jesus Christ suffered in our place. He bore what no human being could ever bear. If you think about it, if he bore the pains of hell in his own being on the cross, it will take a sinner bearing the wrath of God for all of eternity to pay for for his sins. But it will never be fully paid because we're finite beings and God is infinitely holy. 
So Christ took our place. But not only is this death of Christ our substitutionary, the death of Christ is also what we call penal. That's why we believe as Christians penal substitutionary atonement. And I've already really discussed it, but what it means is that Christ bore our penalty. He's the one who died to bear the penalty that our sins deserved. He's the one who satisfies God's justice and satisfies, propitiates his wrath. He paid the debt. And every time we sin, our debt gets larger and larger and larger. And we can never pay it. And you can't pay off your debt by your good works. You can't pay off your debt by the sacraments or coming to church. There's only one who could pay your debt that you owe to God, and that is Jesus Christ. His perfect life, his obedient life, culminated in his substitutionary death on the cross. So he paid our penalty. The Bible is full of this language. Listen to Isaiah 53, 5. And this is thousands of years, maybe 800 years before Christ came. It's a prophecy about Christ. It's about Christ paying the penalty for our sins. I mean, the atonement is in Isaiah. It says, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. He's crushed. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And who is the one that chastised God, or Jesus? Who is the one that punished Jesus? Who's the one that that punished him? It was God. Jesus Christ was bearing the wrath of God for our sins. And the God-man is the only one who could actually accomplish that. One theologian said, God saves us from God. Something to that effect. Jesus was punished for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin. He took upon our sins that we might be made the righteous of God in him through faith and repentance. So that is the nature of the atonement. It's substitutionary and it's penal. Christ paid the penalty that we deserved. He took our place. Now, Fourth, let's look real quick. This is real quick. At the extent of the atonement. For whom did Christ die? So you see, here we're faced with a pretty big dilemma, aren't we? If Christ's death was in fact substitutionary and penal, which I think I've proven it is, then for whom did he die? Well, let's think about the scenarios. If Christ died for every single man and paid their penalty, then why would they have to suffer in hell after their penalty had already been paid for. Think about it. If the atonement, if Jesus Christ actually paid, substitutionary and penally paid for the sins of every single man, woman, and child that's ever lived on the face of this earth, but the Bible also teaches about hell, there should be people in hell, then that means that these people 
who are in hell are actually paying for their sins two times. It's like double jeopardy. God's requiring a double payment. Jesus Christ pays for their sins on the cross, and then they pay for them too in hell for all of eternity. That doesn't seem right, does it? That seems to infringe on the very justice of God. God's just. He's not going to do double jeopardy. Even in our law court on this land, you can't, you can't charge someone twice for the same crime. Right? Called double jeopardy. Okay, so that's one scenario. And that seems like it would infringe on the very justice of God. Well, secondly, if it's true that Jesus died and paid the penalty of every single person, the only other scenario could be, well, that means every single person is saved. And we know that's not true, right? We know that's not true in experience. And also the Bible teaches about hell. Not everybody's going to be saved. It's actually a narrow road that leads to life. But if Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every man, woman, and child who's ever lived, it was substitutionary, it was penal, he paid their penalty, then that would mean that everyone would have to inevitably get saved. Some people have thought that. It's called universalism. Maybe they'll get saved in their next life or something like that. They'll get another chance. But that's not true either. We can't, we can't accept that either. So this leads us, therefore, to the inevitable conclusion that Christ died to pay for the sins of those who would believe in him. Only those who would believe in him. Only the, Christ died to pay for the sins of believers or those who would become believers. Which we might say that Christ died to pay for the sins of his people. Those who were chosen in eternity past by the Father. Remember, the Father sets his love on this people. This love of distinction, this electing sovereign love. And then he sends his son to die on the cross for everyone. That also wouldn't work, would it? That would be a disharmony in the Trinity. The Trinity only has one will. So, the Father sets his love on his people. He sends Jesus Christ to die on the cross for those people. And every single person for whom Christ dies will inevitably get saved. And they will be born again. And they will serve Christ. So that's whom Christ died for, is his people. Or those who would become his people. Now, I think this also can be, this will be shown in the next verse, but let's, let's move on to the last point. The atonement also provides our sanctification. Because you might be reading this text, right? And you say, wait a second. You must be wrong, Pastor Jay, because it says the love of Christ controls us having concluded this, that one died for all. There it is. One died for all. He died for everyone. You just, you just said something that's not in the word of God. Well, we need to interpret the Bible better than that. It says if one died for all, therefore all died. So everyone for whom Christ died for, they all died. Now there, we're left with two different scenarios. Maybe he's speaking of, well, they all died in Adam. When Adam sinned, everyone died, right? Isn't that what the Bible teaches, original sin? Yes, but that's totally foreign to the context. That's not at all what's happening. Because notice, it says, for one died for all, all died. And all those people who died are also what? We'll talk about it, resurrected. And they don't live for themselves, for the one who died and rose again. So let me just explain to you what's going on. 
The Bible teaches, another strand of teaching is this, that Christ died for all his people, and when he died for all of his people, they all died in Christ. They died in and with Jesus Christ, and they were brought into union with him. And not only do they die with him, and their old man is left in the grave, they're raised up with him to newness of life. It's sanctification. They're set free from the power of canceled sin, like we sang. And now they live in newness of life to the glory of God, which is what Paul calls here, they no longer live for themselves. So every single person for whom Christ died, dies in and with Jesus. And not only do they die with Jesus, they're brought into this glorious union with him. They're raised up with him. They're set free from the power of sin, that you don't have to live your life like you did before you were a Christian. Now you have the fruits of the Spirit, and you don't live for yourself, but you live for the one who died and rose again on your behalf. The logic is really impeccable. So what the Bible teaches is that if you're a Christian, Christ died for you, but when Christ died, you died as well. When Christ died, you died. And, but Christ didn't just stay in the grave, did he? No. Christ rose again from the grave, and that set you free from the power of sin and death. That's why Christians can walk in newness of life. I'll show you that real quickly, just so you see that I'm not just making this up. It's a very important teaching about sanctification in the New Testament. Look quickly with me at Romans 6. We don't have time to go through the whole issue. But Romans 6, 1 through 11, maybe you can meditate upon this text when you get home. That this is what it's teaching. And, and just to tell you very quickly, when it talks about baptism, he's not talking about a water baptism. He's talking about when you were converted, you were immersed into Christ. And when you were immersed into Christ, you were immersed into his death. And you were also raised with him in newness of life. Okay, so the whole text is, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? He says, certainly not, in verse 2. How can you who have died to sin live any longer in it? And he explains to you, how, can you, how did you die to sin? If you were a Christian, you died to sin. Did you know that? It's true. You died. Well, you died because you were brought into union with Christ. I'll just start reading from verse 6, so maybe it'll make it a little easier. Knowing this, our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. See, you died with him, you're living with him. Everyone for whom Christ died also died in Christ. And now you're living with him. He goes on. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer has mass over him. For death, for the death that he lived, he died once to sin. Once for all, in the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, he says, verse 11, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey his lust. See, what he's saying is, is that just as Christ died, you died, and now you no longer, you've died to sin, and now you live unto God. Now you have a glorious union with Jesus Christ. Look really quickly at Colossians, real quick. Colossians 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse um, 
Colossians chapter 3, therefore, verse 1, therefore have you been raised with, up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right. What do you mean you've been raised up with Christ? Well, you died with him. It says, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. See, the Christian has actually died with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God, but Christ, as I said, was resurrected and now you have Newness of life. That's newness of the Spirit of God in your life. You have been crucified with Christ. Paul says, it's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. And that's exactly what Paul means when he says, if one died for all, every single person for whom Christ died, died in Christ. And that is why he goes on, he says, and guess what? What's the result of that? What's the result? A life of sanctification. He says in verse 15, he repeats himself, there, and he died for all. For what? So that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died and rose again on their behalf. So you see the, the logic. We have sanctification because we have resurrection with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, no longer you who live. Christ lives in us. And the tail test sign then is are we living for ourselves or are we living for the one who died and rose again on our behalf? Who are you living for? That's a good test. Now we get to see this good test of did Christ die for you? Because maybe you're asking that. Well, if he didn't die for every single person, did he die for me? Well, do you have faith in Christ? And ask yourself, who are you living for? Are you living for yourself or are you living for Christ? Because if you're living for yourself, then maybe you've never experienced that death and burial and union and resurrection with Jesus. So that's a very important test of our Christianity, don't you think? That's very important. Uh, I was going to give an example of this may be in the, the Emancipation Proclamation. You guys have heard of the Emancipation Proclamation in the Civil War. It's sometimes called Proclamation 95. Um, it was a presidential proclamation and executive order issued by President Abraham Lincoln on January 1st, 1863. It changed the federal legal status of, th- of more than 3 million enslaved people in the designated areas of the South from slave to free. As soon as a slave escaped the control of the Confederate government by running away or through the advances of federal troops, the slave became legally free. So in a sense, I use that as an illustration saying that this text, the Word of God, is your emancipation proclamation. If you've become a Christian and you've experienced this death, resurrection with Christ, then you, my friend, are free. You don't have to walk in your sins. This is your emancipation proclamation. You can be set free from sins. You can be set free from the power of the devil who is holding you captive. And now you can live unto the glory of God. And it's all through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. It's really a, is it an amazing thing? This atonement, it's a supreme demonstration of love of God, as we said. This atonement is, a, is actually a compelling motivation also to serve God. 
As we saw, we also saw the nature of the atonement. It's substitutionary. He took our place. He paid our penalty. So we say it's penal. And then lastly, it also provides sanctification for us. It provides a life of living for God, not a life of living for self. All right, let's pray.